Hello, and welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, money, the root of all evil? Well, Ken, to discuss that, we should have to be we would have to be clear about money and evil and, and roots. That's a tall order. I'll make you a deal. Let's just stick to money. Let's try to get clear about money. You tell me, what is it, and how come I don't have any? Well, about you not having, I don't know why you don't have any. I know how well paid you are. So, But look, here's one way to answer your question. Here, here's a 20 and uh, three runs, ones right from my wallet now. That's money, dude. Answer your question? No, but it does remind me of a story I heard a long time ago from an economist friend at UCLA. Someone called the economics department, he told me. And this person said he'd made a discovery that he thought was worthy of a Nobel Prize. He wanted to know where to apply. Well, what's your discovery, they said. It's just paper, he said. He was holding it in his hands and rubbing it back and forth, just like you were. It's just paper. It's not worth anything. Now, he had made a great discovery, Ken, but probably he was not the first. Money is just paper. You can't eat it. You can't smoke it, as far as I know. You can't even write on it very easily, but it, it doesn't follow that it's not worth anything. So you tell me, why are those bits of paper you showed me worth anything? Well, I, I think what impressed the fellow in the story, in your story, was that dollar bills, even $20 bills or $100 bills, have no intrinsic worth. Some things we want to eat, like grain, or adorn ourselves with, like gold, or, or kill other people with, like swords, those things have a kind of direct value. But the value of money is that we can use it to get those other things. Money has what you might call instrumental or functional value. We can use it to get other things. So given that it doesn't have intrinsic value, the value that it does have is pretty important, though. Now, here's a jingle from Wikipedia about the functions of money. Money is a matter of functions for a medium, a measure, a standard, a store. Now, can you explain that to me, Ken? Yeah, yeah. Well, money's a medium because we use it to get goods and services rather than, say, barter for them. It's a measure because it provides units, a, a way of counting and measuring things in terms of it. Well, could you have a medium that wasn't a measure? Well, suppose you use diamonds as money. I mean, no two diamonds are exactly alike. So if I paid you two diamonds, you'd never know how much you were, you, you'd get, you were getting unless you had some other unit to keep track of the relative worth of the various diamonds. That's why precious metals like gold and silver that can be melted and made into standard size units, they're better as money. So, or in the case of our government, zinc or something like that. But okay, that, that takes care of medium and measure. How about standard and store? Well, money is a standard because it's used to say what counts for settling a debt. And, and that only works because the money I pay you back with has the same value as the money I borrowed from you in the first place. That's the idea of money as a store, a way of storing up value, which actually gets into something pretty controversial. What's that? Well, for a long time, the idea was that paper money, like we have today, functioned as a store because the government that issued the money promised to exchange on demand a certain amount of gold or silver or some other commodity of more intrinsic value. So the value of paper money was, as they said, good as gold, or at least it was as good as gold times the probability of the government keeping its word. Well, I actually remember dollars that said they were silver certificates backed by silver. And I remember my grandfather showing me a gold certificate that he'd held on to even after it became illegal to do so in the 30s. But those dollars and that $20 bill you just showed me don't say anything about gold and silver. They say 
This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. It seems somewhat paradoxical. Paradoxical? Uh, how? Well, it seems that what makes money useful for the first three functions, medium, measure, and standard, is really the fourth, that it's connected, at least by some government's promise, to something of more intrinsic value. But on your dollars, where there should be such a promise, there's instead a statement, really an implied threat, accept this in payment of goods or services or else, or else the U.S. government will be really mad at you. Maybe our would-be Nobel Prize winner is right. It is just paper. And it is really worthless, except for a government-enforced shared illusion that it's not. Well, maybe that government-enforced shared illusion does something. It makes a new reality. You know, so it is a little uh, paradoxical. But luckily, we have a little help getting through this morass about money. Alex Gould from Stanford University will join us shortly. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Stryker, talked to someone who spent time in a society that operates without money. She files this report. In a world ruled by money, it's hard to imagine economies that work without it. San Francisco State University anthropologist Mariana Fajera has lived and worked in the Amazon with several groups of Indians, the Kayabi, the Suya, and the Shavanti, who rely on a gift economy. I had no idea that in order to be called a generous person, that I was supposed to give everything I had away. Knowing she was going to teach in a remote location, Mariana went to the Xingu Indian Reservation in central Brazil with pots and pans and tins of powdered milk. During the first week, all of my food completely disappeared, which put me in a, in a state of anxiety because I wasn't very familiar with the food that was eaten in that place too. But very soon I learned that, uh, obviously they took all my food away, but I was given much more in return and everybody took care of me. A gift economy is the antithesis of capitalism, where the person with the most toys wins. It's all about networks of giving and receiving. No bartering is involved. You invite people on purpose so that they will come to your house or to your village or wherever it is, and you will give them something. And by putting them in a situation where they can't say no, uh, which we actually do a lot in order to avoid other kinds of obligations, you actually establish a form of a contract where they will have to invite you uh, back to wherever they live, and so therefore triggering a circle of very tight social bonds and social relations. There was an idea that indigenous peoples couldn't understand Western mathematics. Mariana found that they wanted to learn numbers so they wouldn't be cheated out of land or goods anymore by outsiders. She quickly realized they weren't ignorant of plus and minus, they just saw things reciprocally. I caught 10 fish and I gave three to my brother, how many do I have now? And that in school, when you would say give away, sometimes they would use a plus because they would say my brother or my nephew or my uncle will pay me back twice as much because the value of the gift is increased once the prestation is offered. It turns out that their social philosophy was reflected in their concept of numbers. Numbers stand for social relations. Whereas we're used to thinking of a unit as one, in uh, the Shavanti people of central Brazil, they think of the unit as two, necessarily a pair. One was not considered a whole, but rather a half of a pair. Even though they had numerals, the people Mariana worked with didn't keep track of exact numbers of who accumulated what, like us with our bank accounts. 
So how did this gift economy work in practice? Sometimes I would see, for example, a canoe loaded with fish coming in, and the person who had actually gone fishing being left with just a few fish and having distributed everything else. Well, guess what? Next time a fish load comes into the village or somebody goes out hunting or brings a lot of mangoes or whatever it is, that person who is so generous is going to have perhaps first pick. No Rockefellers or Kennedys here. It turns out the people with the most status had the least stuff. The status that comes with being the most generous of all, which is what the headman or the leader needs to be, it is usually the uh, poorest and the most, let's say, inconspicuous uh, house that the leader inhabits. Some of the native peoples do use money for specific goods, like fish hooks and soap in towns that border the reservations. And what do they do with the currency that passes through their hands? They treat it like any other fish or fruit they have. They share it. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.